Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, and welcome back to The Victory Kitchen. And welcome to season four. It is so good to be back after a break and to be recording a new season of the podcast. I have so many awesome topics planned for this season and I hope you are as excited as I am. This episode is number 25 and we are going to be talking about hunting, fishing, and trapping in wartime and answering a few questions about how these were impacted by war and why they were important to food rationing. Now, this episode came about thanks to one question I asked while writing one scene in my second World War II book, Through Fields of War, which is still isn't finished, by the way. <laughs> uh, there's this scene where my character Walter takes his grandpa's gun out to go hunting. And I'm writing it, and then I stopped and I thought, wait a second, is he even able to get any bullets? It's wartime. <laughs> so I asked a friend. He didn't know. So then I did some research in the newspapers, and lo and behold, I fell down the rabbit hole that is this episode. <laughs> it is not a simple answer, and I am so excited to talk about what I found. Now, I wanted to start out with a couple disclaimers. First and foremost, I know that hunting and guns and politics are kind of a, an intertwined issue today. And as I've found studying original source material in these hunting magazines that I found, um, it was back then too. So I just wanted to make sure it is clear that I am a neutral party in the pursuit of knowledge in this topic. So, you know, what I'm talking about in this episode in no way reflects my personal feelings on the matter um, one way or the other. The second disclaimer that I wanted to make is that my experience with hunting extends only as far as taking selfies at Bass Pro Shops. <laughs> so um, I've only been fishing once in my life. And while I did enjoy it a lot, and I even caught a fish, uh, the whole thing about what to do with the fish kind of freaked me out. And I have not gone back to fishing since. <laughs> so while I might not be the most qualified person to wax poetical about hunting and fishing, I actually was able to sit down with my father-in-law who did grow up hunting. Um, we skimmed through my wartime hunting magazines that I, like I said, I sourced. And he was able to tell me some things. So, and I did even call him up with some questions to make sure I was saying things correctly and I knew what I was talking about. So um, at the very least, I'll be putting my passion for history into this. And I did want to extend a special thank you to my father-in-law for helping me with some of the gun and ammunition lingo. <laughs> so I didn't completely embarrass myself. So I, I did want to say that there's no way that I can cover everything on these topics. It's impossible. There was just so much. I just had no idea that this was even a thing. It's just one of those aspects of the war that's not talked about. And I am so thrilled that I discovered this little niche because it sure needs to be talked about. It needs to be studied and learned about. So uh, I hope that this episode serves to whet your appetite for your own research endeavors. Maybe think about investing in a couple wartime editions of hunting and fishing magazines like uh, Sports of Field, Hunting and Fishing, Field and Stream, or Fur Fish Game magazines. Those are a few of the titles. There are all over eBay. So if this is a topic that is really exciting for you, I really encourage you to 
check it out because there are just so many amazing stories and articles and and things in these magazines that are just waiting to be rediscovered. Now, I was hoping to coincide this episode with National Wildlife Week, which was just last week. So it was April 5th through the 9th. So I just barely missed it, but you know, it's it's around the time, same time. The National Wildlife Week was first celebrated in 1938 by the National Wildlife Federation. And I found references for it in wartime newspaper headlines, which also fueled a lot of great research for this episode. Now, this might seem like a pretty obvious question, but why was preserving wildlife so important, especially in a time of war? In an April 12th article from 1942 in the Courier Journal of Louisville, Kentucky, they marked the fifth observance of National Wildlife Week, which was inaugurated by a proclamation of President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1938. Captain Soper of the Fish and Wildlife Service of the U.S. Department of the Interior pointed out that Wildlife is a resource that the nation must take care of at all times, just as individuals have to guard their own resources while doing their utmost to win the war. In the article entitled Wildlife Helping to Win the War, it says, Conservation, profitable at all times, and particularly so during wartime, the service employee emphasized Effective use of natural resources is possible today because conservation policies have been pursued in the past. Among the contributions the Fish and Wildlife Service is making to the war, Sober mentioned, providing for food supplies from the fisheries, protecting livestock, crops, food stores, and vital stocks of merchandise from predators and rodents, encouraging a good national morale through outdoor recreation, and correcting water pollution. Our annual harvest of fishery products amounts to about 4,500,000,000 pounds, he said, much of which is being used for lend-lease requirements. Through service control campaigns last year, 123,000 predatory animals were taken, resulting in savings of wool and meat supplies. And and then besides this was um, maintaining of clean water and timber supplies. Many aspects to um, natural resources and conservation that was and still is important for our country. And all of this was especially important in a time of war. I I really like this list because, I mean, this was the only place where I found where they listed specific things that the Fish and Wildlife Service were doing on a regular basis. But in the time of war, they were most especially important you know, like protecting the livestock and the crops and food stores from predators and rodents. And the fact that the annual harvest of the fishery products was 4.5 billion pounds, that is huge. And a lot of that was for lend-lease requirements. You know, I, in my studies, I was mostly, you know, focusing on fishing in the oceans and lakes and rivers, but I had not even thought about fisheries. So when I read this, I was just astounded that all of that fish came from fisheries that was that's just amazing so this observance of national wildlife week was to bring attention to the importance of our natural resources the importance of preserving them and this really comes into play in the discussion about hunting and fishing and the war which we will see (laughs) So now we come to hunting. And when it comes to hunting, this is a pretty big section. And I I needed to narrow it down. And so I just wanted to ask a couple basic questions. One was, was hunting encouraged and used as a way to supplement meat rationing? And two, could hunters get ammunition? And I just wanted to answer those two questions, mostly because that's what I was trying to answer when I was writing my book. And so that's what we're going to answer today because hunting and wartime in general, there's just so much to talk about. And I think I there are a couple other things I will talk about because they're just kind of all interwoven. They'll just kind of sneak their way in there anyway. But so first off, was hunting encouraged by the U.S. government as a way to supplement meat rationing? And the answer, surprise, surprise, is not very clear cut. The answer is no and yes. 
So, no. From what I've seen, there was not an active propaganda campaign encouraging people or hunters to go out and hunt game or to fish to supplement their meat supply. It was not like in World War One, where we have propaganda posters as evidence, especially for fishing. Like, I, you can go and see these posters. On the other hand, yes. <laughs> However... The hobbies, the activity, the value of hunters was acknowledged by the government, which we see in legislation and the talks surrounding ammunition being made available, as well as the talk about wildlife conservation. So they were acknowledged and the importance of their role in maintaining wildlife population, you know, that was valued, but... um, (laughs) Uh, It was just not an active campaign from the government. So one example I found was in the York Dispatch out of Pennsylvania from October 22nd, 1943, stating, quote, in recent weeks, federal and state news releases have informed hunters that there will be ammunition for them to go forth and kill small game so that they can help relieve the shortage of meat. Popular sporting magazines have been speaking in the same vein, close quote. So, so there is talk that, you know, hey, you can help relieve the shortage of meat by going and, you know, hunting some food, hunting for some food. So there is talk of that. And even in the magazines that I've read in a lot of the articles, they talk about, you know, um, relief for, you know, meat ration stamps by hunting, like they can go get meat instead of using up their red ration stamps. Now, could hunters get ammunition? (laughs) The answer is sometimes. There was ammunition rationing that varied at times through the war. It was a difficult tug of war that hunters were fighting with the war production board. I think it was put very nicely in this article from the Minneapolis Star from March 9th, 1943. And it mentions that it wasn't just hunters in search of ammunition shells. There's an article titled, Farmers Get Shells for Vermin Control. And now, I really liked this article because this is exactly what I was looking for for my book. But this also is very interesting because it shows that it wasn't just hunters that were looking for ammunition. Farmers really needed these as well. And sometimes they were given higher priority. It says, some of the farmers will receive ammunition for predator control in 1943, but they must show that they need it. There is still a great shortage of 30-06 and 50 caliber shells, and ammunition companies are working day and night to produce them. It seems foolish to talk about hunting ammunition when we are rationing our battleships on ammunition at this time. There is a tremendous shortage of metals, and there is very little steel and brass. The War Production Board has set up the Defense Supplies Corporation for the distribution of ammunition and other commodities to those entitled to receive them. They have appointed 47 distributors throughout the United States. So this article gives us quite a lot of good information. And I really like that they talk about, you know, it's foolish to talk about hunting ammunition when we're rationing our battleships on ammunition. Um <laughs> But it's really important for these farmers, too. They need to keep predators away from their animals. They need, In order to do that, they really need ammunition. And so while hunting for food is nice, maybe it's not a necessity, especially when our battleships can't even get as much ammunition as they need. So that's kind of what they're saying. Now, in order to get these shotgun shells the farmers had to fill out an application and show which ammunition he needed and certify that the ammunition would be used entirely for vermin control he had to swear he tried to obtain it other ways i'm guessing at the sporting goods store but wasn't able to and he had to certify that he didn't have any other application out there for ammunition so he wasn't trying to double dip Then the application had to be turned in to the dealer, who then forwarded it to the jobber, who in turn shipped the ammunition to the dealer. And then the quantity was limited as well for the farmer. He got two boxes of 3030s, two boxes of 22s, 
and two boxes of shotgun shells per quarter of the year. Any false statement made, the applicant was subject to a $5,000 fine or a long term in jail. It was mostly intended for ground squirrels on the West Coast or for sheep herders. So that was for these farmers who had these predator problems. Um, Yeah, so a little tricky to even get ammunition for farmers. And they had to swear not to use it for other things. I'm guessing hunting, maybe? (laughs) In various newspaper articles, they talk about the concern about this lack of ammunition for the hunting season. One article even talked about how the government promised there would be ammunition on the shelves of sporting goods shops, but nine days away from the opening of the season and the shelves were still bare. Some hunters assumed the shops were hoarding the ammunition and a few of them went so far as to threaten shop owners and make runs on stores, demanding they bring out the boxes of shells that they had to be keeping in the basement or stocked in their warehouses. Oh dear. The shop owners insisted they had no overstock of ammunition. So there was a concern once shells did come back into stock, how they were going to fairly distribute this product to these desperate hunters. Oh, it was kind of a mess. And also the distribution of ammunition around the country from munitions manufacturers was uneven at best, where the western states got some first, leaving the eastern states to get it last. And like food rationing, ammunition rationing varied year by year, depending on what was going on in the greater war and supply chain situations, you know. (laughs) One article from the Delta Democrat Times from Greenville, Mississippi, from December 17th, 1944, entitled, Hunters May Lose Their Ammunition Rations Again, (laughs) stated, The War Production Board is taking steps to conserve civilian supplies since most of the small arms ammunition is required to meet a shortage in military needs, particularly in the assault against Germany. Already, WPB, this is the War Production Board, has ordered civilian ammunition shipments halted at factories. It was stated that hunters probably will lose their rations equal since last August to those of farmers. So at that point, they had been getting as much as farmers, but not anymore. And because of their, their ramping up for the assault against Germany. So from this article, we can see the war was directly affecting why they were not going to be getting as much ammunition for hunting. Now, this is where we come to a little separate topic. But I felt this is really important to talk about because this was a huge concern for many hunters and conservationists. The biggest concern was maintaining the hard-earned wildlife conservation of the past 50 years. There was a huge concern about talk in government and the public about having a quote-unquote game harvest to supplement the nation's meat supply in the name of a war emergency. So in other words, they were just going to go out and have just a huge slaughter of wild game to supplement the meat supply. It was this very tricky balance of conservation versus meat supply versus ammunition, gas and rubber rationing all mixed in with politics and some people's hysteria over the unknown. The Dispatch newspaper had a section featuring the feelings of the local Moline club members. It says, The group as a whole favors reasonable harvest of game and fish to supplement the nation's food supply and the manufacture of some ammunition for sporting purposes. Club directors also are of the opinion that such harvest must not be commercialized and that gains which conservation organizations have accomplished in the last few years should be protected. It is our patriotic duty to see that wildlife is protected so that our soldiers returning from war victorious will again be able to find recreation in hunting and fishing. That it is also our duty to see to it that the proper harvest of wildlife is taken to assure continuance of this source of food for our citizens. And I found this sentiment a lot in things that I read about 
preserving the natural resources, especially for the soldiers that are overseas, so that they have something to come home to. Later in the article, uh, they quote from the Audubon Society, which had a different view of the matter, quoting director John H. Baker, the animal harvest of meat from game animals, birds, and fish would be 435 million pounds. They estimate that this would be less than 1% of the nation's meat supply, a drop in the bucket. And harvesting this meat, Baker points out, would involve considerable expenditure of ammunition, gasoline, tires, and manpower that could be spent profitably in other directions. He goes on to warn that such a path would lead to the commercialization of game hunting and would be more dangerous to the long-term interests of the country than it would be to maintain the established conservation policies. So, in other words, if you go and harvest all that meat in the wild, it would just be a drop in the bucket to satisfy the nation's meat needs, and then you've completely destroyed the conservation efforts that we've made. So that's essentially what they're saying. And really, we are just getting started. This was such a hot topic. (laughs) I found so much that people had to say about this. In the Field and Stream magazine from April 1943, there's an article called, What About Shells? A Vital Conservation Question. In the article, it says, Considerable agitation is already underway for the killing off of big game herds for emergency food purposes. Such moves are sponsored by various elements such as the non-sportsman, to whom hunting means nothing, the market hunter, who would like to have a job selling meat, the rancher who begrudges a belly full of grass to a deer or an elk, and the hysterical guy who just hollers out of ignorance. The situation is serious and is becoming more so. Recognizing it, the North Dakota legislature has passed House Concurrent Resolution B, which is printed herewith. Other states are also becoming alarmed. So in this article, they printed out this House Concurrent Resolution B. And what it says is it is the Memorializing the War Production Board of the United States to release sufficient supplies of metallic ammunition and shotgun shells to permit hunters to adequately harvest surplus crops of game birds and game animals for food during the period of the war emergency. But it goes a little bit further than that. It also kind of lays out how they feel that the wild game and birds should be hunted sustainably. This same field and stream article also reported on the 8th North American Wildlife Conference and how they submitted their findings and recommendations to the U.S. War Production Board. And this is what they said. Regular harvesting of annual wildlife crops is important to America's war effort for the following principal reasons. One, it represents a potential food supply in excess of a quarter billion pounds of essential meat, plus hides, feathers, fats, and other products which will be gathered without interference with war production. Two, unless properly harvested, the resulting increase will seriously interfere with the production of domestic food for the war effort. Three, harvesting this crop in the usual manner will contribute importantly to the physical and moral conditioning of America's manpower of the defense program. Since hunting provides war foods, protects war crops, and conditions war manpower, therefore we recommend and urge the War Production Board to release sufficient ammunition to provide for such harvest as would be consistent with the defense program. So so what they're really saying is that first of all, hunting recklessly just for the sake of the war emergency is ridiculous and is a stupid idea. (laughs) Secondly, you need to release enough ammunition so that the hunters who know how to hunt responsibly can just get the job done. And the commercialization of hunting is an absolute no way. Uh, So people who are just going to go out and sweep away all the game and make it, you know, a commercialized paid thing is just such a bad idea. A third point they make is about the conditioning of war manpower. And I think this point is really important because, you know, like I mentioned before about the the work of the Fish and Wildlife Service was, you know, part of what they did was encouraging a good national morale through outdoor recreation. And so I think when they are talking here about their third point, 
of harvesting this crop in the usual manner will contribute importantly to the physical and moral conditioning of America's manpower. I think that's what they're alluding to. They're talking about how hunting as a sport helps with the morale of the people. And that was a really important aspect during wartime was boosting the nation's morale. I am going to have pictures of this article on my blog so that you can see uh, the House Concurrent Resolution B because it lists all of the, um, the things that they talk about. And I think it's definitely worth reading. It's very interesting. Now, I just want to make a little side note. This isn't to say that women couldn't or weren't doing the hunting. They did. But from what I've seen, at least in the magazines, they didn't tend to do the big game hunting, just the smaller hunting for fowls like ducks and pheasants. Um, I'm sure they did though. So it just, I haven't seen the pictures in the magazines. I'm sure there are stories out there. I just haven't heard them yet. Um, and there are a whole host of other things to talk about, like hunting licenses, how those were super important for sustaining, um, hunting and wartime hunting and also duck stamps. That's a whole other topic to talk about, which I won't go into. There's just so much to talk about. But now we're going to talk, but now we're going to move on to the topic of fishing. Who could fish and where? That's kind of what I wanted to focus on for this topic. There was freshwater fishing versus saltwater fishing versus deep sea fishing. And I'm not going to even talk about fisheries. That's like a whole thing I didn't even go into. Then there was fishing on the Great Lakes. Um, something I learned was that fishermen in Lake, at least in Lake Michigan that I found out, were excused from the gas ration and eventually exempt from the draft because the need for fish was so crucial. Now, when it came to the job of a fisherman, I mean, it was a kind of a dangerous job. But in wartime, especially on the ocean, that was like even more dangerous. And so I just really admire them for just keeping on doing their job um, in a time of war. It was not easy. And I guess maybe it's because I grew up in a mostly landlocked state in Indiana. We can kind of claim a little bit of a tip of Lake Michigan, but um, I just don't think about fish very much. <laughs> but, you know, the fishing industry was massive and the demand for fish was huge. It was a very important is industry for wartime food. In the United States, fish was not rationed. And so, um, you know, the demand for that kind of a meat source, I'm sure was even higher because it was not rationed. So, and then because of the land lease requirements, we were sending overseas a lot of fish. So, you know, there was always this huge demand for fish. And so it's this part of the ration story of food that's really important. And so their jobs were, you know, really crucial. But in order to get on the oceans, there were a lot of rules, which is what we're going to talk about. What I learned about saltwater fishing was very fascinating. There was an article in Sports Field in the July 1942 issue called Atlantic Coast Tuna Fishing, Effect of War Restrictions on Saltwater Fishing. And if you think about, especially this early in the war, with the threat of U-boats and, you know, just ships on the seas, just not a good idea to be out there. <laughs> so you can imagine that they, the Coast Guard, would have had to put in a lot more rules and um, safety guidelines to protect the fishermen and civilians. So all those who fished in salt water had to obtain identification cards from the Coast Guard and show proof of U.S. citizenship before they were allowed to leave any port along the coast. To do this, the uh, in the article, it said they recommended getting one of the application blanks, filling it out, having it endorsed by your employer, and then presenting it along with your birth certificate or naturalization papers to the U.S. Coast Guard, along with three passport-sized photographs of yourself. You would then be fingerprinted and given a card which you had to carry with you at all times, otherwise you wouldn't be allowed on any fishing boat. If obtaining your birth certificate was difficult, as some men were finding 
at the time, they would accept a baptismal certificate issued within one year of birth. In the article, it says, Unfortunately, we have a very large foreign population in many of our eastern states, especially along our coastline, where some are apt to forget the country, which has given them protection if they can profit by supplying our enemies with fuel or food. Therefore, it is not surprising that all captains and their crews must show proof of citizenship before they are allowed to leave any port along our coast. This is done by the U.S. Coast Guard issuing identification cards to all those who are eligible to receive the same. Uh... And you can see in this, well, straight off the bat, they say, unfortunately, we have a very large, you know, I, and this kind of, this really does reflect their feeling, um, just that fear and prejudice through this automatic suspicion because of being at war. And so they are demonstrating that by, you know, anyone who is quote unquote, foreign and securing their shores by having these identification cards and making sure that the only ones on the boats are naturalized citizens. So they continue saying, while offshore fishing will be restricted to the hours of daylight, sunrise to sunset, it causes the anglers to seek new fishing grounds within sight of the coast. At first, this may appear to hamper successful offshore fishing, but it may also open up new possibilities of fishing for tuna a few miles from shore. I didn't find too much about deep sea fishing, but I did find an ad about how deep sea fishing was not allowed. Um, It was about Florida, and I think it was about fishing tackle, like deep sea fishing tackle. And um, it was saying that, you know, deep sea fishing is forbidden right now, but after the war, don't forget about our company because deep sea fishing is great. (laughs) And I showed, you know, um, some marlins and stuff like that. So and I did not go into a lot of in-depth research about that particular topic. But if that is of interest to you, go for it. <laughs> I I also came across a little, um, a little ad in... I thought this was so sweet. <laughs> this was in the Hunting and Fishing magazine from October 1944. It's an ad about donating unused fishing tackle to boys in service. It says, let's go hunting up in the attic, out in the garage, way back in the closet. It says, the boys in service want and need all the spare fishing tackle you can dig up. Our first call received fair response, but not good enough. Don't put it off and remember anything in the fishing tackle line can be used. It doesn't have to be brand new. Some fellows got that impression from our first appeal. And if it's a rod or reel in need of repair, don't let that stop you. There's a group of willing volunteers ready and waiting to go to work on any equipment that needs a little fixin'. Send plugs, sinkers, line hooks, anything and everything in the line of tackle you can dig up. They'll be sorted and made up into useful kits by experienced fishermen for distribution to men in the armed forces, on ships, overseas, and on lonely posts on this continent. Mail your packages by parcel post to Tackle Clearinghouse. And I've even seen uh, like a fishing tackle company that they say that that's part of like the army kit, like a fish and a fishing hook and a line goes into every army kit um anyway i just found this so interesting the last little thing i wanted to read to you was actually this ad from south bend quality tackle and it's it shows a son who's in the army he's in his army uniform and he's got his hand on his dad's shoulder who's sitting on this rock and they're they've they're in this tranquil forest scene by this lake with a rowboat and they're looking at this fishing cabin it says take care of it dad and this is what it says it's just a rough job of peeled logs but it's all ours we built it together and to me it stands for all the things that make life worth living yes dad worth fighting for i'll spend many a night thinking about all these things when i'm away Gosh, Dad, even building it was fun. Of course it was work, but that kind of work is fun. Remember when we cut and peeled and hauled the spruce and swatted black flies? And how we hauled the floorboards in from Eagle Lake? And the day we brought the cook stove across in the rowboat? Tough work, wasn't it? And when we got her finished, well, I guess no boy was ever prouder. And no boy and his dad ever had a more wonderful place to enjoy together. 
I'll be thinking of those trout in the creek, the small mouths in the lake, my rods on the wall, yes, and those breakfasts we cook together, and the raindrops on the roof above my head. Gosh, how a fellow can sleep on those rainy nights. I'll think of the days we just poked around in the woods together, when we didn't feel specially like fishing. Say, Dad, you'll look after my fishing tackle, won't you? I'm depending on you. I'd hate to think of coming back without those things to look forward to, and I expect about ten million boys feel the same way. Not that I want to be selfish, Dad, but with these woods and lakes and streams destroyed, our fish and birds and game gone, it would seem like throwing away the greatest thing we're fighting for, this outdoor heritage that makes me proud to be an American. So take good care of it, will you, Dad? <laughs> it goes on to say, War has brought new responsibilities to us at South Bend. We're not making fishing tackle, but our 100% in war production. That's our first responsibility. Another responsibility on the home front is to guard against greed, against waste and destruction of all that made America great, to contribute to the conservation of our tremendously important natural resources with which and for which wars are fought. To us, this makes sense. <laughs> so, and this is an Indiana company. Well, there you go. My home state. <laughs> so, um, uh, it just tugs at the heartstrings, doesn't it? <laughs> oh my goodness. So this, oh man, there are things like this all over the place in these magazines and they are really like putting it home that, you know, these natural resources, we got to protect them for our boys in the service and they they have to have this to come home to like this is our patriotic duty to protect these natural resources so that they will have streams to fish in and there will be fish there and that there will be you know ducks to hunt and deer to hunt so it's just they were so passionate about it the last subject that I wanted to cover really quick was about trapping I had not anticipated talking about trapping, but I came across an article in, it was just actually just mentioned in the table of contents of the January 1945 issue of Fur Fish Game. And I bought it and then realized it was just like a teaser for the February issue. <laughs> I felt so dumb. So I hunted down the February issue and I was so glad I did because it is such a fascinating article. It is called Trapping and the War is the name of the article. And it talks about how besides meat, you know, animals provided many other uses for the war effort. But it also talks about how the trappers, the unique troubles that they had due to the war. But first I wanted to uh, read in... The Dispatch article I've been mentioning throughout this episode from March 20th, 1943. I really like how it talks about all the uses for the wild animals for the war effort. And this is what it says. Deer and elk skins have proved to be a useful byproduct of the harvest of big game and are in great demand for gloves and mucklucks to equip men in the military forces stationed in the Arctic. Fats from game and fur animals, previously discarded as waste material, were salvaged and converted into use in the manufacture of munitions. Another wartime contribution made by wildlife has been the salvaging of duck and goose feathers for use in making sleeping bags and aviator's jackets. Fur animals are contributing a valuable share to the war program since furs are needed to clothe soldiers fighting in cold climates. So not just, not just furs, but, you know, just... The other byproducts of harvesting game animals, you know, the things that their bodies were providing to to keep the men in service warm and, you know, the fats also that they were being used in munitions. I just find that really fascinating um, because, you know, besides meat, you know, where was the rest of the the products, you know, that normally were waste products? They were, they were being put to use. Okay, so for the trapping... You know, they, they didn't necessarily, I mean, it doesn't really affect food, which is why I hadn't planned on talking about it, but it was still a really important aspect. And I can't see whenever, you know, nobody talks about this. So I figured I'd just kind of slip it in here anyway, because it does have to do with, you know, um, the nat national wildlife conservation topic. So one of the issues that they were dealing with was they 
had a hard time getting traps because of the metal rationing. So they had to kind of make do with the traps that they already had. Or some of them were showing a great interest in the old ways of doing things. So the old snares and traps that had been used by hundreds and hundreds of years by uh, the native people. And so there was a resurgence of interest in that. (laughs) But otherwise, I mean, they just had to kind of make do with what they had. But the, the main problem was the author of the article, The War and Trapping, by it was Raymond Thompson was the author. He was mostly concerned with the, that balance that I, I've been talking about of, you know, a, a lot of men had gone to war. So a lot of these trap lines had been going unchecked. And he was very concerned about how quickly these animals reproduce. So during, you know, before the war, the trap lines, you know, these trappers were doing a good job of keeping these populations of these predators in check, you know, foxes, muskrats, and things like that. But since so many of them had gone to war, now they were able to reproduce totally undisturbed. <laughs> and and their populations were going to increase unheeded, which would then in turn cause a huge problem for farmers, which then in turn, of course, would affect food supply. And in the article, he, he says, coyotes are killing my turkeys. Bears are killing stock right on my ranch. Wildcats are raising Hades with my flock of leghorns, etc., etc., or typical reports I get. So there is no doubt that fur bearers are increasing in numbers. Muskrats, skunks, raccoons, and the common fur bearer animals of every locality are enjoying a respite. And then he launches into talking all about like the price of furs and how that's gone way down uh, because the price administration is not allowing people to buy luxury furs. So that's a whole different topic. But uh, but what we can see here is that, you know, the fur-bearing animals are just not being trapped. And, you know, so the hunters that we talked about before, they typically hunted the big game like, you know, like the deer and the elk, which would graze if, the, you know, they weren't hunted, they would overgraze on places where cattle were supposed to graze and that would affect you know the beef industry but these fur bearing animals like the coyotes and the bears wild cats you know that also did have an impact on the food industry uh with farmers and i do have to say i have a prejudice against raccoons Luckily, there are none that live near us. They are terrible when it comes to chickens. They will go after them. So <laughs> uh, so it could be a real problem. These predators can be real problems for, for farmers. Um, and then if, you know, farmers don't have enough ammunition to take care of their varmint, uh, problems, that's, that's a whole other issue. But so these trappers, yeah. If there's not enough of them taking care of this, the population and providing furs for, you know, what's needed for the war effort. I don't know. It's just like this whole balance uh, in the conservation of our natural resources. It's just such an interesting conversation. I had never even thought about it in the wartime sense. And I hope it's been interesting for you as well. I wanted to close off by quoting from this article from the Dispatch from 20th of March, 1943. The article was entitled National Wildlife Week Produces Discussions. It says, as custodians of our national wildlife resources, all Americans are responsible for their wise use. While we must strive to make these resources yield the maximum in food and recreation in wartime consistent with good management, On the other hand, we must not allow conservation gains made during the last 50 years to be lost. No one should stand idly by and permit the stupid and wasteful exploitation of these resources under the guise of wartime emergency. While the aspect is encouraging in every field of wildlife conservation, 
The purpose now must be to hold these gains, even though the programs which made them possible cannot be carried forward under existing conditions. The cost of the effort necessary to preserve that which has been built is small compared with its value. Wise husbandry of food resources is necessary in peacetime. It is utterly essential to a nation at war. Today's cookbook feature is Men in Aprons by Lawrence A. Keating. Now, this is a very special cookbook, (laughs) and it is one of the funniest cookbooks that I have ever read. It was first published in 1944, and the issue that I have, or the edition that I have, is from 1945, March of 1945. So this is a wartime cookbook. And he acknowledges that in his introduction, and I have to say that from the get-go, because (laughs) we will come to that. But he is absolutely hilarious to read. And the biggest reason why I chose this cookbook is because of a chapter about hunting. And so the chapters that he deals with are breakfast, Sunday night tea, smart shopping, kitchen talk and salads, poker club snacks, drinks on the house, dinner is served, cutting up at home, and then finally, the Hungry Hunter Club with Rod, Gun, and Skillet. So there's a whole chapter where he talks about some adventures with his hunting buddies, and he's got a few menus with um that preparing game and fowl fish and then even a menu for if you caught nothing (laughs) which I find very funny so uh and that's actually kind of the layout of his cookbook there are a lot of recipes but each chapter has like a menus and then within those menus he provides the recipes So that's kind of how he teaches uh, the cooking. But this book is written with an exclusive male audience in mind. And in fact, his introduction is labeled for men only. And this is what he says. This book is intended to be a sort of grocery rescue mission for men. Why? Because with virtually all his erstwhile haunts, yes, and his very clothes appropriated by the gentler sex, man finds himself sorely beset. Even his most treasured privileges, like standing up in crowded buses, have been rudely snatched from him. Women have usurped and usurped until it is high time for men to rally together and usurp back. Most of our leading thinkers of industry, the professions, and the bar, in fact, 100% of bar flies now agree that cookery, education can, should be, and dang it, will be the first step toward rehabilitation of the dazed and staggering male ego. Fight fire with fire on the cook stove is their cry. Indeed, the very preservation of today's race of sweethearts and husbands may depend on spreading the know-how contained in this book. Statistics show that ignorance of how to boil an egg or prepare a dainty crab and aspic salad has already threatened with starvation untold numbers of useful males. Write in my own block a respected citizen, send stamped envelope for name, faded to but a wraith of his former girth while his little woman sat on arguing at the director's table of the Elm Avenue Study Club until actually past 6.30 p.m. So it just goes on. <laughs> So this book, according to Mr. Keating, is uh, to save the the male species. <laughs> Jeez. It's so funny to read. And so I, I just had so much fun looking through uh, the introduction, the recipes. And uh, this is where we get down to it, though. The recipes. The first recipe I made was actually, I I couldn't decide. So I put the recipes to vote with my patrons on Patreon. So it was a little bit of a tie between two things. So I I made one of the things that was a tie and that was a banana cake with caramel frosting. And that just sounded so delicious. But here's the thing. 
it's the middle of the war. Uh, he is a little bit cheeky to be putting in a banana cake in this in this cookbook. And he does, like I said, acknowledge at the beginning that there is a war on. So I am going into this recipe thinking, okay, banana cake. <laughs> but straight off the bat, it is just the most blatant use of sugar and butter that I have seen in a wartime recipe. There's two thirds cup of butter, one and a half cups of sugar, uh, two eggs, a cup of crushed banana. He doesn't even mention that there's, you know, maybe an imitation banana you might want to use. No, just the straight up banana. Uh, there's milk and then flour, so uh, baking soda and then vanilla. A whole teaspoon of just vanilla, not even imitation vanilla. <laughs> it's okay. I'll forgive him that one. But so all of this lovely butter, he just doesn't even bother with, you know, all the methods of saving that all of the women's cookbooks out there go to painstaking process teaching the women how to preserve things, how to make things stretch in the kitchen. No, he doesn't even, he doesn't even go there. So you make this cake, which by the way, is absolutely delicious. I mean, why wouldn't it be? It has tons of butter and sugar in it. <laughs> uh, but then we come down to the frosting, this caramel frosting. <sighs> I was very intrigued by this frosting because it has brown sugar, flour, milk, more butter, vanilla, and then marshmallow whip. Now, the only thing I could think of that he meant was like marshmallow fluff or something like that. So I went to the store. They did not have marshmallow fluff brand. I found another another brand. So I used that, but it calls for two cups of brown sugar. And I was astonished. <laughs> so, so I make this frosting and he has you cook it to a firm ball stage. And then he has you beat it. And so essentially, you're like making a fudge. And and, and then uh, you beat it until it's thick. Then you add vanilla and the marshmallow whip. You beat it until it's smooth. Anyway, I mean, and then, well, and in the beginning, you add the milk and the butter and the flour. Anyway, so yeah, anyway, a lot at the end you essentially have a very poorly made fudge because there's not enough of ingredients to make a fudge, but it's very thick and crumbly and not anything like a frosting at all. I had to keep adding the marshmallow whip to hopefully save this stuff. It did not work very well. <laughs> and I was very angry with Mr. Keating for making me waste two cups of brown sugar. Uh, yeah, not impressed at all. <laughs> so, but here's the interesting thing. So I made this cake. I put, I did put the, sh the frosting on there. Somehow I like plastered it on there and I made it, it, I made it into a two layer cake. So some in between, some on top. I couldn't even put it on the sides. Like it was impossible. And then I, I put it in uh, in my vintage cake platter with the dome on it. And so we kept it for about a week in there. It kept pretty well. But here's the interesting thing. Over time, that very thick, stiff frosting did soften until it was, you know, but it wasn't like frosting, frosting. It was still very gritty. Big fail, Mr. Keating. So... <laughs> I did follow all the instructions and there's just something wrong with this recipe. But I still give a thumbs up for the cake even if it was a blatant thumbing of the nose at the wartime rationing. Jeez. Wow. Okay, so besides irresponsible uses of butter and sugar, uh, the recipe that got the most votes from my wonderful patrons on Patreon was this recipe for spiced pot roast of beef. And this does it. I mean, it did sound so delicious, but it has a very interesting method that intrigued me. You take a five to six pound 
rump roast, which I was actually not able to find at my grocery store. Uh, my grocery store is not super huge, so I just got the largest roast I could, which was, I think, three and a half or four pounds. I think it was three and a half pounds. It needs olive oil, five slices of bacon, five cloves of garlic, ground allspice, can of tomatoes, a bunch of carrots, a stalk of celery, six onions, quarter cup of chopped parsley. Oh, dang, I forgot to put that in. <laughs> I meant to. A uh, half cup of wine vinegar, two bay leaves, a dozen whole crushed peppercorns, salt and pepper, and a quart of water. So what you would do is you take your roast and you cut slits into it. Then you take your slices of bacon and you cut them in half and then you coat them in allspice, like you dip them in allspice. And this is what I found very interesting. Then you take the cloves of garlic and you cut them in half and then you roll each half clove of garlic in the bacon. And then you shove the garlic wrapped in bacon into the slits in the roast. So I did all of that. It was very interesting. And I mean, it made sense to me, but you know, it was still, I've never done anything like that before. So, uh, and then you cover the meat with the vegetables, except for the tomatoes and the vinegar. And then you just let it stand for a few hours. Just kind of let them mingle. It does not say to refrigerate, but I sure did. I did refrigerate it. Then after it just sat for a few hours in the fridge, I brought it out and then I took the vegetables off and then I browned the meat in hot butter. It just says hot fat. I didn't want to do it in oil. I guess maybe that's what the olive oil is for. I don't know. I forgot about that. So I just used butter because <laughs> that's what I had on hand. And th I did that in my Dutch oven. And then I put the vegetables back in. Then I added the water, the tomatoes, vinegar, and the seasoning. And then you just cover it and let it simmer for three to four hours. I think I did four hours. Then you take the meat out, put it on a serving platter. You can skim the grease from the gravy left in the pan. That's interesting. Gravy left in the pan because I had a whole bunch of juice left. Like it was so much. It was like a soup. So there was... It would have made a whole ton of gravy. <laughs> but then you're supposed to serve it with buttered noodles. So I can see how this, I mean, that would make a really nice meal. So it was actually a very interesting dish. I, I mean, it just tasted like a pot roast with some extra spice, like all spice. But I didn't feel like the bacon did much for it. And I and when I did like eat some of the bacon, it just tasted like mushy allspice nothingness. Like I felt like I wanted my bacon back. Thank you. <laughs> and it would have been better served like cooked separately, crisped up and added as a garnish. So you could have gotten that delicious bacon flavor added to it. I don't know. I felt like the bacon was a bit much. It was like too fancy for no reason. That's what I felt. So overall, I I felt like these recipes were just a little over the top. <laughs> uh, not impressed right now. There is one more recipe I want to try. I haven't tried it yet. It was the one that uh, the banana cake tied with. It was for some homemade baked beans. I've been wanting to try a 1940s baked beans recipe. So I think I will still try that one um, because it just sounded delicious. And it comes from the menu for the day that there is no catch uh, when you're hunting or fishing and you don't catch anything. Uh, you can make these baked beans and it sounds really delicious. So I will make those and report about it on Instagram so you can check it out there. But I will have these recipes and the pictures of the food I made on my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com.
Today's story highlight comes from the Hunting and Fishing magazine from October 1944. There's this section in the magazine that is called Logs on the Fire. And this is where people could send in uh, their letters and comments, pictures and criticisms. <laughs> so I especially love the pictures. They sent in all kinds. And there's even servicemen who sent in pictures from overseas because they would get the magazine as well. So I wanted to read two different uh, little stories that people had sent in. One was entitled Deep Sea Fishing on the Wabash. And the Wabash is a river in Indiana. And this was sent in by Ben T. Jordan of Indianapolis, Indiana. He said, Hunting and fishing is widely read and enjoyed in this section. Indianapolis is strictly an inland city, and most of us in these parts are the lowly variety or mine-run type of bank and river fishermen. Before gasoline rationing, a few of us could, of course, go north to lakes and streams where we could get the bigger ones. Rationing has, however, made a great many of us appreciate fishing close to home. There is a lot of sport to be had in some of these little streams. Hunting and fishing has given me a lot of good ideas that have improved results. I even enjoy the articles on deep sea fishing and articles relative to fishing in mountain streams. It would probably come as a distinct shock to some to know that I have applied to ordinary bank and line fishing some of the principles used in deep lake and sea fishing as gathered from your magazine. The results obtained with these very unorthodox methods have at times bordered on amazing, which all goes to prove that we can pick up real ideas for improving performance from your very fine magazine. Um, I liked this story because, well, for one, he's pointing out that at least, I mean, I'm familiar with living in Indiana, so I know what he's talking about where a lot of people would go north to the Great Lake of Lake Michigan to go fishing it's a very big, deep lake, so lots of bigger fish to be had there. But because of the war, you know, gasoline and rubber rationing made that not possible. So they had to make do with the smaller lakes and streams and rivers. And I think it's really interesting that he's taking the knowledge that he's learning from these magazines instead of like feeling sorry for himself and saying, oh, man. I can't do any of that stuff. Um, he's instead applying those principles to the water sport that is available to him. So I just think that's really a great attitude to have. The other story is called One Big Happy Family. This was sent in by James Minetto of Torrington, Connecticut. He says, Dear Editor, I sure get a kick out of the stories and pictures sent to your magazine by its readers. To me, it makes its readers one big happy family visiting one another after having been separated, getting out the old family album, and going over pictures while separated. I've seen pictures in hunting and fishing of deer taken in nearly every state, so I am sending one taken of a nice heavy eight-point buck shot in Connecticut under conditions that were ideal. Beautiful morning, soft snow, and the good fortune of bringing home ration stamps on the hoof. No, this deer was not taken illegally. Connecticut has a permit system that allows a person one deer, buck, or doe during December. Although not the best shot in the world, I hit this deer between the antlers and ears. One inch higher would have been a sure miss, as deer was in high gear at the time. I naturally aimed behind the shoulder. Let's hope you continue... <laughs> printing these pictures and all sportsmen will become better acquainted with hunting and fishing conditions throughout the country. So I, I like how he says that um, he had the good fortune of bringing home ration stamps on the hoof. Um, <laughs> so he was thinking about, you know, supplementing their meat supply instead of having to go buy it. And a lot of people in these magazines I've noticed they l really liked, they've commented about how they really like seeing what other people um are doing with hunting and they see they say oh I see you haven't really posted much about you know hunting in Minnesota so here's my family and I or here's my buddies and I here we've hunted and this is what we caught and things like that so very interesting and it's it's definitely a community um, that they kept all together and that was another important aspect of this magazine is they would say, you know, once you've read your magazine, pass it on to someone else, pass it on to some servicemen overseas or to your boy in the service so that they can read this magazine too. 
because it might be difficult for them to get them and they enjoy reading these magazines. So it was important to maintain this community for the the sportsmen that were in the service. So I just find that really uh, an interesting aspect of the war that I just had never thought about before. Well, that's all for today's episode. If you'd like to join my community and support my podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash victorykitchenpodcast. If you or your family have American Homefront stories, I would love to be able to share them on my podcast. To share your story, you go to victorykitchenpodcast.com and click on share a homefront story. I share lots of things on Instagram that I don't share anywhere else. So come on over and give me a follow. My handle is victorykitchenpodcast. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.